said before, no kingdom kids, so we're all together this morning uh, for our time in God's Word. If you're a guest with us today, we are glad to have you with us, but I have to warn you, this is not the, the Christmas sermon that you expect. We will consider this morning the history-making, life-changing birth of Jesus Christ, but we're not talking about the angels or the shepherds or the wise men. We heard some of that read and sang some of those famous scenes. Today, we're wrapping up a short series of sermons. The title uh, you see on the screen is taken from the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that calls Jesus the second Adam from above. The, the Bible itself makes the link for us in several places, comparing the first human being, Adam, with Christ, the eternal Son of God, who became fully human. Why compare Adam to Jesus? Well, in so many ways, Adam shows us what humanity is supposed to be, what we're supposed to be, according to God's creation design. And to this point in the series, we focused on Genesis 1 and 2, starting from there, how we are to bear God's image, have dominion, uh, that we're living beings, that we, are, we become one uh, as man and wife, those who are married. Uh, but every week we've had to acknowledge what happens in, cha- in Genesis 3, which is our passage for today, because there we see where Adam fails and why we all fall short, and how is it that uh, we have a moral instinct? We know, all of us, what is right and what is wrong in some sense, and yet we have so much trouble in doing what is right on a consistent basis. If we're honest, we often feel a strong pull to do what is wrong, what we know is wrong. So the, the problem is, is really a lot deeper than just you know bad behavior, being naughty rather than nice. There's something wrong inside of us, something wrong in me. And the good news of the Bible, the reason why we celebrate Jesus' birth, is that uh, where Adam fails God's calling, Jesus fulfills it. And even better, for all the ways that our first parents dragged us down into sin and death, Christ raises up all who are His by faith into light and life forever. So here's our theme for this morning. On Christmas, celebrate Jesus who was tempted like us and will lead us into His triumph. Celebrate Jesus who is tempted like us and will lead us into his triumph. We're going to do that in four parts. Adam's temptation, Christ's temptation, Christ's triumph, and our triumph. You may see that on the back of the worship folder. That may help you to follow along. So here's part one, Adam's temptation. Adam and Eve fell prey to Satan's lies, but God promised them a Savior. We're going to look first at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, and I need to take a moment, excuse me. Genesis 2, 15 to 17, we'll be in 3 in just a moment, but this is important background. 2, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work, work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that leads into the passage we covered last week, where God provides Eve as the perfect counterpart to Adam so that they could carry out their commission together. And let's read the last verse of chapter 2 and then continue through uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Two ends. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. I'm going to stop right there. Um. <clears throat> Most people hearing this for the first time, I don't know how many times you've heard this before, maybe this is your first time. Most people hearing this the first time think, a talking serpent? What? But that's only part of the surprise in this passage. See, nothing in the first two chapters of the Bible give, in a, give any clue that there's anything or anyone in opposition to the Creator God in this world that He has made. Yet here's this creature enticing the woman to go against God's command. The text doesn't tell us where this sinister character came from, though the rest of the Bible confirms our suspicions. This is no ordinary snake. It's a fallen angel known as Satan. And we don't have time to go into his backstory or even into all the details uh, of this temptation and human sin. In light of our theme, I want to fill out the picture of Adam's failure. True, Eve later admits that she was deceived by the serpent, but that doesn't mean Adam's off the hook. Uh, There in verse 6, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Who was with her? Who who was with? As in, he was there the whole time, just listening, standing there, no no objection, no no hesitation. Now, we understand it it may well have been that both Adam and Eve were pretty naive at this point. But remember, Adam had been given the responsibility to work and to keep the garden. And the Hebrew word translated there as keep in 2.15 has the idea of guarding and protecting. And Adam had been given that one rule, the only prohibition. Was he responsible to make sure that Eve knew what God really said? And if he was right there, shouldn't he have made clear what God said? Shouldn't he have stepped in and stomped on the snake? Another pointer to Adam's primary responsibility in this scene comes in the next section. Notice that God goes first to Adam to answer for what they had done. Verse, well, pick up in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
Now, sadly, we are all too familiar with this story, even if you've never read the Bible before today. You know what happens when you do something that you shouldn't do. I mean, we see this in, in toddlers. Uh, you, you, they, they, they do something that they know they're not supposed to do, and, and suddenly you can't find them anymore. They're hiding. You, you, co- you cover up poorly, like these fig leaves. That was not very, not very helpful. Okay, you cover up poorly, you withdraw, you hide, you shift the blame. Adam's line, the woman you gave me. Uh, wow, blaming the woman and God at the same time. Pretty amazing. Pretty, pretty pathetic, really. Now, don't be too quick to pile on Adam here because we've all been there. We've been there many times. In fact, it's because Adam failed at this point that we fail. And we fail much more spectacularly. Uh, Romans 5 says it was Adam's sin that means we all sin. And now it's, it's in our nature as a descendant of Adam. We fall into sin easily because it's something in us that wants what's wrong. We, we want to believe Satan's lies. And he's got a whole bunch of them. Uh, he, he, a whole repertoire. Uh, things like, everybody's doing it. Or, you can get away with it. Or, it's not hurting anyone. And the classic, what we see here, did God really say that? And sometimes we're, what we're tempted to do seems so little, just a, a little lie, just a little cheating, just a little peek, uh, but it creates a massive break between you and God because you decided in that moment to live the life He gave you. You decided to live your life your way, not His way. Here's the thing. It's true at the beginning, and it's still true today. This world we live in is God's world. You and I can't go against Him without consequences. You might as well try to defy the law of gravity and jump out a 10-story window. You can, you can defy the, the law as much as you want, but you can't avoid the consequences. If we read the rest of the chapter, God spells out the consequences. No longer will Adam and Eve and humankind enjoy the blessing of the original creation. Now they will live under the curse. And life includes pain and death. And I don't have to tell you, that's the world we still live in today. But with the curse comes the very first promise of salvation. So we left off at verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is way bigger than saying that, you know, most humans are not going to get along with snakes. Satan, he's saying, you deceived the woman, but she will bring forth one to defeat you. The word bruised here in the translation I'm using may sound relatively mild. Like, you can, I mean, you can bruise an apple. Uh, if you, as you get older, you might be like, like man, I, I, I just bummed my arm and I got this bruise on me now. What, what's, that, what's going on here? Um, but it, this same Hebrew word is used later in the Scriptures to describe uh, gold being ground into powder. I mean, this is, we're talking about some, some real impact here. So, Satan, you're going to be able to strike, and the other translations have this, to strike his heel, pow, like, boom, but he will strike your head. He will bruise your head. He will crush your head. And to strike the head would be a fatal blow for the snake. To deceive, excuse me, to defeat the deceiver 
would be a glorious day for humankind and for God's creation. And that day is coming, God says. Now, you can imagine then that Eve, with every child that she bore, every grandchild she saw come into the world, she wondered, is this the one? Is this the one who will finally defeat Satan? Now, we today know who the one is, because we were singing songs earlier this morning. Like, remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Or later, to free all those who trust in Him from Satan's power and might. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. This is the good news. Jesus has come to defeat Satan. But we'll see this first, not not in the stories of Jesus' birth, but in His own temptation. So let's go to the second part. This is Christ's temptation. Jesus countered Satan's attack with God's word, never succumbing to sin. Now, at the end of Luke chapter 3, uh, we get a genealogy of Jesus, which, you know, we tend to skim, a long list of names that we can't pronounce. What's interesting about this particular genealogy, unlike the one in Matthew that takes Jesus all the way back to Abraham, so point being, Jesus was a Jew, uh, this one goes all the way back beyond Abraham to Adam. Emphasis there being Jesus is part of the human race. And it's no accident that the very next passage connects Jesus to Adam. So I'm going to go now to Luke chapter 4 and read from there. You might want to go with me or you can just listen. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to pick up right after the genealogy that connects Jesus to Adam. Luke 4 begins, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So, like the very first temptation in Genesis, Satan is twisting God's word. And he's trying to undermine Jesus' calling and commission. But there are differences, too, between Adam and Jesus and their temptation. Adam encountered Satan in the Garden of Eden with every need supplied. Jesus battled Satan in the wilderness, hungry and after a lengthy test. Adam gave in silently, passively, without holding to God's word. Jesus counters Satan with God's word and does not surrender. Question, does it encourage you that Jesus did not give in to temptation? I mean, sure, it's better than Genesis 3, like, Boo, Adam, hooray for Jesus. But does it really make any difference when you are tempted? Are we supposed to take the lesson from this to be, hey, Jesus resisted temptation, why can't you? Or, 
Jesus shows us how to defeat Satan. Just use his strategy. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think there's something for us to learn here about how to resist temptation, knowing and being committed to God's word so that we are not deceived when it gets twisted by the devil. But that's not by itself good news, not tidings of comfort and joy. To know that someone else managed to get the better of the serpent, so you need to get back out there and fight and get it right this time. I don't know about you, but that's more discouraging than encouraging because I know the battles where I've failed time and again, even after an inspiring sermon or even after making New Year's resolutions. If all I have is someone telling me, hey, come on, it's, it's not that hard. You can do it. I'm not sure if they really get what I'm going through. I'm not sure that they understand just how messed up I am on the inside. Now, before we take a look at Jesus' more decisive victory over Satan, hear this from Hebrews describing Jesus as a merciful priest, meaning the one that stands between God and, and humankind, and he, he's a merciful mediator. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then in chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So don't get the idea that because Jesus was the Son of God, he didn't feel the pressure of that temptation. Hebrews says twice, he suffered. Now, I don't think he struggled in the sense that we do, like deep down he really wanted to do it, but he was kind of fighting it. Uh, However, in his humanity, again, in that temptation, he was indeed hungry. He was indeed weak. But one theologian put it like this. This is good enough. I want to read at length. He says, We must be careful not to misconstrue the effect of Jesus' sinless integrity at this point. Far from meaning a shorter, painless struggle with temptation, it involved him in protracted resistance and a long battle. Precisely because he did not yield easily and was not, like us, an easy prey, the devil had to deploy all his wiles and use all his resources. The very fact that he was invincible meant that he endured the full force of temptation's ferocity until hell slunk away, defeated and exhausted. That's the beautiful picture of Christ suffering in temptation and yet victorious. So if Jesus knows what it's like to take Satan's every punch and keep standing, then he can fully sympathize with whatever battle you are in. And that means you can go to him. That means he understands your weakness, your compulsive eating or compulsive spending, your addiction to gambling or pornography or whatever. And you can have confidence, not simply that he has a sympathetic ear, but someone who can help you overcome because of the next part in our sermon. This is Christ's triumph. Jesus seemed to be defeated at the cross, but it was his victory over sin. Now, even though uh, Romans 5, uh, half the chapter is about comparing Adam and Christ, I'm just going to read a few verses. Romans 5, verse 12, and then a few verses after that. Let me get there. I've got more passages than bookmarks this morning. So Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world 
through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, skipping ahead to verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, one man's disobedience, that's Adam's sin in the garden. What is Paul referring to by one man's obedience? It's Jesus, of course. Is it that Jesus, well, always did the Father's will? He never, ever sinned? Uh, 5.18 says it's the one act of righteousness in contrast to Adam's first sin. Adam had more than one sin, but comparing Adam's first sin to uh, Jesus' one act of obedience, what's that act? It, it's the what if, if the one sin of Adam had such sweeping effects for humankind, what is the one act of Christ, obedience, that will bring righteousness to many in such a sweeping way? I gave the answer already. It's in the outline. It was the cross. It was there when Jesus died on the cross. This is what Colossians chapter 3 says. Excuse me, Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Those rulers and authorities include every evil spiritual power. All the armies of Satan, disarmed, defeated, retreating in shame. How did Jesus win this decisive victory? What did Paul say just before? On the cross, Christ paid for your sins. Your debt is covered. It is canceled. Every line of your criminal record wiped clean. And that means, this is the key, this is the link, Satan has no claim on you anymore if you are in Christ. You may already know that the name Satan means accuser. Uh, So picture him as some demented prosecuting attorney standing before God the judge pointing his bony finger at you. He's guilty and God, you know it. She deserves death, God, and you know it. And you're sitting there and you know it. It's true. He's got an airtight case. God knows all about your sin, you know all about your sin, and that's why apart from Christ, we're trapped in guilt. The guilty verdict, the death sentence seems inevitable. But when Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to the cross, it's as if our bill, our debt, all that we owed but could not pay, all the charges for all our crimes that condemned us were stuck on that nail. That's what Paul says. An ancient bill that was paid would have the very same words that Christ uttered on the cross. It is finished. Paid for. Canceled. Now do you see how the death of Christ became the death blow for Satan? If you are in Christ, Satan doesn't have any power over you anymore. Christ stands opposite that prosecuting attorney as the one defending you so that when when, like Satan says, you, we, you know they're guilty. And Christ says to the judge, and you know I paid for those sins. 
you can't sentence them to death. The cross was the serpent's bruising, Christ's heel. Jesus seemingly defeated, but at the same time, the cross was Christ crushing Satan's head. It was his victory. And at the first promise of salvation given to Adam and Eve there in the garden was fulfilled. I quoted this passage a couple of weeks ago, but it bears repeating. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He died so that we don't have to fear death anymore. He destroyed the one with the power of death, the devil. So if you're here today and you know that you are in a losing battle with sin, again and again you give in to temptation, you're doing the things that you know are wrong and yet you have this pull within you, you feel like you can't resist it, the the case against you is strong. No doubt of a guilty verdict before God. Today is the day to put your faith in the one who died to spare your life. This is the reason why we celebrate Christmas. It's the coming of the Savior, and this Christmas can be your coming to the Savior. But I need to caution you, because uh, you might think, I've been saying Jesus' cross and your faith means, hey, the end of the conflict. The battle's been won. War's over, right? Mm, Yes and no. That's our last part here. This is part four, our triumph. We are still in the battle, but one day the deceiver will be defeated forever. We are still in the battle, but one day day the deceiver will be defeated forever. We do not yet live in a world without evil, without Satan, sin, and death, because there had to be more than just the removal of temptation. Adam's race needed to have their hearts turned back to God, first in repentance and faith, and the spread of the gospel, the good news of the Savior going to all people, then emboldened by their new standing in Christ, justified before the judge, we fight back against temptation. No longer silent, no longer passive slaves. Now, there are many passages we could read to tell of this ongoing battle during this age when we proclaim Christ and His cross to captive souls. The most familiar ones maybe to you are these, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Be sober-minded. Be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Or Ephesians 6, you may know this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Here's the reality that we face. And I don't do you any favors by making it sound easy. Well, just take up the armor of God. You, you know, just no, no problem. Every day, you and I face new temptations and familiar ones. And the issue is always the same. Will we continue to trust God's word, to follow his commands, to live out our calling and commission that we have in Adam and in Christ, our creation commission and our redemption commission? Or will we give in to the lies that tell us we can have it all, all the pleasure, all the power, all the freedom in life apart from God? 
Do not be deceived. That is not your victory. That's a surrender that leads to defeat and death. Stay in the battle, brother and sister. Fight in the power that we have in Christ. But here's even more encouragement. The the Bible ends with the book of Revelation that describes many difficult challenges that believers will face, but it also offers great hope. The challenge is this, that we must press on in faith despite opposition, sometimes violent opposition. The promise is that Christ and those who are, who are His will win in the end. So, Revelation 2 says this, 2, 10 and 11. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, get that part, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hear that? No no longer condemned to death like Adam and Eve. Or Revelation 2, 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, no longer banished from the garden like Adam and Eve. Or 3, 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. No more hiding, no more fig leaves, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But that is for the one who conquers, the one who carries on to the end of the battle. Now, I can't read all those verses, and I can't end this sermon without this highly symbolic vision in Roman, or excuse me, Revelation 12. This is the last passage I'll read this morning. We've covered a lot of ground. One more, but this is really crucial. Revelation 12, and here's the beginning of the chapter. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. 
and it's later in chapter 20 that we read of Satan's ultimate end. It says there in Revelation 20, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them, who was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, there's a whole lot to decipher there. As I told you, I warned you, it's highly symbolic. Um, But for our purpose this morning and the very close of this sermon, Jesus, of course, is the offspring of the woman. Revelation 12, it's, it's Christmas. He's, he's born. The child is born. Uh, and this woman, uh, you could say, is it Eve? Is it Mary? Uh, Israel is, the, I think, the best answer there. But the, this fulfills Genesis 3.15, connecting Christmas to the cross, to the kingdom, and to our ultimate eternal triumph through Christ's triumph. Because even though we may suffer persecution and even death for Christ's name, verse 11 of chapter 12 said, again, they... We, believers in Jesus, have conquered him, that old serpent, the great dragon. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. This world has been at war ever since our temptation and the fall in the garden, and the war continues. We fight the battle against temptation every day day, and we face Satan's opposition all the more as we're devoted to God. But the victory is assured in Christ. For as sure as we are in the battle, we are just as surely on our way to the garden city and the tree of life where we will be clothed in white and we will eat of the tree of life where Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. That's why on this Christmas day, inviting you to celebrate Jesus who is tempted like us, and will bring us into his triumph. That's where we're headed, folks. The battle won, and Christ on the throne. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this, is, uh, this has been a race through the whole of Scriptures, but it is your story that is our story. And I pray that that in some way, you would capture not only our imagination, but our hearts as weak and as fickle as we so often are, weary from the battle, that you would encourage us today that Christ has won and will bring us into his triumph. Lord, help us as we continue the fight. Help us to trust you, to to believe your word and to obey your word, but most of all, to rest in what Christ has accomplished for us through his death to pay for our sins. And Lord, I pray that that would give us each and every one a great confidence. We are not standing on our own record. If we tried to stand on our own record before the great judge, we would fail, we would fall, we would be condemned. We are standing on Christ's record. And Lord, I pray that would give us a great confidence, a great peace, a great boldness to be faithful, a great humility that says we're nothing special. We're just people who have been forgiven and brought in to God's family by grace. Lord, that would be a great reason for celebrating the coming of our Savior on Christmas and on every day we live in light of his sacrifice and in view of his kingdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.